Heather, uh, you know, I probably should be introducing this podcast and myself, but what I really want to do is I want to start off and first, and I want to say thank you for being here. Um, I think this is going to be a fun adventure. Well, and I'm really honored to be here and to be your first guest on this new podcast. Yeah. And, you know, you have podcast experience. Uh, I guess my question for you is like, you know, am I going to figure this out? Am I going to create my own sort of form and style? And how does that work? <laughs> oh, I, I, absolutely. I mean, um, the the wisdom that was handed down to me when I first started, well, first hosting a blog, which isn't live conversation, obviously, um, mm-hmm. but then hosting a radio show was that, yeah, you have to find your own voice. Nobody else can tell you how to do it. Uh, and the thing that I always loved when I was hosting a show, um, being in, in your seat, right, is that ability to find your own voice, but also really tap into your own curiosity, mm. um, invite people into a space where you get to shape that space and um, shape a conversation and really dive in and, and explore things from a lot of different perspectives. So yeah, I'm, I'm a little envious of you being on the, <laughs> the starting end of that, uh, that journey. I remember back to about eight years ago when I started my own show and it was intimidating, but it was also really thrilling. And uh, the, the good news is the intimidating part went away over time. The thrilling part never did. Oh, that's so cool. And, you know, I really love the idea that if you're following those natural curiosities, if you're following a passion for learning and expanding your sense of self and your awareness in this world, like that's going to lead to good, good, really good conversations. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Years of great conversations that I tap into all the time. You know, I remember when I interviewed so-and-so or what about that? And just like you said, the, um, well, creating a space for curiosity, for conversation, for exploration together, I think is really, really important, especially when we're facing really big weighty things like we all are right now, whether that's climate change or a pandemic. Um, I would say that's one thing that in my current job, I have definitely missed over the past year, especially with the pandemic. Um, When the pandemic hit, I remember having this feeling of like, oh, if I was still doing my show, I know exactly what I would be doing right now, right? And I would be reaching out to people thinking, um, you know, what do, what do I need to hear right now? What do I need to know? What, what, what do I, um, what am I really looking for or hungering for? And then finding the people who have that and, you know, inviting them onto the, the show to actually talk about that. Oh, um, I like oh. that. Yeah. Well, how about then? Let me give an official introduction. Um, you know, here we are. Uh, the new Wild Northeast audio experience, uh, what we're calling What is Wild. Uh, my name is David Cruz. And, uh, you know, this, this audio experience is, is a bit of an experiment. We're, we're planning to have uh, podcast episodes, but we also are looking for uh, these sort of audio experiments from the field um, you know, recordings of, of wild nature. And also we plan to um, have recordings of features, you know, our contributors reading from the journal. So, you know, just a lot of fun stuff going on. Um, I have the wonderful pleasure of talking with you today, Dr. Heather Goldstone. Um, Heather, I'm not going to read an official bio because I just don't want it to sound too formal, but uh, anyone here listening uh, needs to check out 
the good work uh, Dr. Goldstone has done. Um, you've served as a journalist, as a scientist. You are now um, chief communications officer over at the Woodwell Climate Research Center. And uh, you could find this awesome organization at woodwellclimate.org. And um, Heather, do you want to maybe introduce just a little bit what the good work that's going on over there for, for everybody? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, as, as you mentioned, I've had uh, maybe a non-traditional career path um, starting off as a scientist, um, but always knowing that I wanted, well, I guess it wouldn't be right to say I wanted to use the science, that for me, science was a pathway to understanding the world and um, communicating that. It was always um, based in a desire going back to when I was 12 years old and did a summer camp with Chesapeake Bay Foundation um, and became aware of the challenges facing the Chesapeake Bay, even at that point. Um, but I wanted to, to do something to help the world, um, using that science to help the world. And so after I finished my PhD, I actually jumped over to radio journalism. Um, and I spent a lot of my time as a journalist covering climate change um, but finally reached a point a couple of years ago where I really felt like I needed to be working on the climate change issue. Well, maybe not 24 seven, but I needed all of my professional effort um, as well as a lot of my personal effort to be going toward this, this issue. And um, couldn't think of a better place to do that than with what was then Woods Hole Research Center. We're right around today, celebrating uh, the one-year anniversary of changing our name to the Woodwell Climate Research Center right. in honor of our founder, George Woodwell, who 36 years ago was already um, seeing where we were headed with, or potentially headed with climate change, um, the danger that that posed, and the need to really integrate science into real-world decision-making. And that's what's really exciting for me about being at Woodwell is that we are first and foremost, a science research organization. We study tropical forests in the Amazon and the Congo. We study forests and tundra in the Arctic and um, rangelands in the, the U.S. Uh, West and uh, the whole globe via remote sensing. But the entire center is infused with this commitment that it's not enough to simply do that science and generate that new understanding that there's a, a difference between knowledge and insight. Mm -hmm. and, and I think a lot of that difference comes from working with the people who can put that knowledge into action. And that's exactly what we do, whether that is indigenous communities and farmers in the Amazon or um, on the far end of the spectrum, the likes of, uh, you know, the UN climate negotiation process or uh, McKinsey and Company or Wellington Asset Management, you know, working in the private sector, really figuring out where are the people who both are in the greatest need of scientific insight and also in the, the best position to put that science into action and drive the change that we really need right now. Um, go out, find them, form partnerships and work with them in doing this science. So it's, it's a really exciting place to work. Yeah, it sounds it. And, and what about, um, it sounds like you're doing, you have huge vision, right? For this organization, like what are some of the challenges you all face um, as you're, you know, trying to cover some of those initiatives and I think honestly, the biggest challenge that we as an organization are facing is the fact that we're a relatively small organization and there is such a need for 
scientific insight and just in general for the information to feed the actions that we need right now, whether that's understanding near-term climate risk at a local level to plan infrastructure and adaptation, or whether that's a better understanding of what the natural world can do in terms of both absorbing or potentially emitting carbon into the atmosphere and making sure that's actually taken into account in policymaking. There's just, um, you know, we need to be moving a lot more quickly than we are. And that means that as a small organization, we're constantly grappling with um, how do we do enough um, to to meet that challenge? How do we make uh, our relatively small organization of, you know, a few dozen scientists um, meet that meet that need. Um, and I think we're, we're doing a, a great job of that, but I think more broadly, the, the challenge is um, finding ways for all of us to really, um, and, and a word that's been um, bouncing around in my head and my conversations for the past few weeks is um, courage. Mm. How do we find and foster and build the courage that we all need right now, and this includes scientists, right, to really yeah. look our own work um, in the eye to really grapple with where we are and where we're headed um, and and muster the courage to um, do what we need to do to, to meet this challenge and wean ourselves off of fossil fuels and greenhouse gas emissions as quickly as, as possible. You know, this is an interesting segue to an idea that we talked about the last time, uh, which you shared with me, this idea of trauma stewardship. And I, I reached out to the Trauma Stewardship Institute, and they sent me some materials, some interviews, and a really wonderful TED Talk by Laura Vandernoot uh, Lipsky, who I guess um, is sort of leading the way over there. Um, and there were a couple of interesting sound bites um, that I took away from her talk. One was this idea that what you're exposed to affects your entire worldview. And hearing you go back and talking about a little bit of your path and how you kind of came to be where you are, you could tell that um, your work you're doing today professionally is clearly wrapped up in your personal life as well. And, you know, there, there aren't a whole lot of there's not a ton of work out there where that's the case, right? I mean, I think about back to my 15-year teaching career. That was a, a job that felt very much like my personal life was wrapped up in my professional vocation, right? Like if I didn't have a good day, you know, I kind of let some kids down, you know? Um, how does that, how, how do you navigate that person? You know, maybe you could talk about this personally, you know, and, and this idea of trauma stewardship and that must weigh on you at times. Yeah. Oh, it does. <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking even, um, you know, yesterday uh, here at the center, well, mm. it, the, the virtual Zoom world that, that is um, kind of being at the, the center and at work for yeah. us these days. But, um, you know, it was less than two weeks ago that the IPCC, the, the scientific body of the UN that um, really collates and synthesizes um, climate change, released their latest assessment of um, the, the physical science, the, the causes and consequences of climate change. And those reports are, 
are syntheses. There's no mm. new science in them, right? And yeah. so especially for scientists in the field, um, there's nothing surprising in there or there shouldn't be anything surprising in there. We've been seeing this developing. This is just pulling it all into one place. And yet that exercise of pulling it all together is still very powerful. And we had a conversation about that yesterday. Almost half of our staff hopped on Zoom to just talk through what are the takeaways um, from this. And it started very much in a scientific place. But the, the sidebar in the Zoom chat, which I happen to think is one of the best things about Zoom life, <laughs> is that sidebar chat um, that sometimes can be too distracting, but sometimes gives you a space um, or gives people a space to say what's really on their mind that's maybe not the, the gist of the, the main conversation that's going on. And what was popping up in the chat were things like some of our young scientists saying, you know, I sometimes question whether I even need retirement savings. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if I'm going to have kids. I'm really questioning whether I would ever do that. How do you guys who have kids think about this? Right. So it's, you know, it is weighing on the scientists who study this, obviously. And I actually think it it's a, an under-recognized or unrecognized toll on scientists. Mm -hmm. These are incredibly passionate people mm -hmm. who are out there on the front lines of discovering what is happening to our world and where we are all collectively headed. And they've been trying for decades to make this not just known to the world, but to be heard, you yeah. know, really heard and incorporated and, and acted on. And the, the combination of um, the weight of understanding the nature of the changes that we're seeing and the frustration, even some people expressing outright anger yeah. that we are where we are and that nobody has listened for so long, like it does take a toll. And I think scientists often um, place on themselves as society does this idea that scientists should not have emotions, that science should be a, a dispassionate um, and objective endeavor. And absolutely, we place all sorts of bounds and protocols um, on our work to ensure that um, our personal emotions and biases don't, um, you know, come through in the results of our experiments. Yeah. But scientists are people too and, yeah. and feel this acutely. And, you know, and, and it was the, the same was true. Um, you might say one step removed as a journalist talking to these scientists on a regular basis. And so one step removed maybe from the actual discovery process, but still in that realm of, okay, I know something that we all need to know and I'm trying to get the word out and it doesn't seem like people are listening. And um, yeah, it definitely does take a toll. And I think that's where we come back to what I mentioned earlier is we can't ignore that. I think we actually need to really listen yeah. to that, but we can't become bogged down in that um, yeah. because, because there's just, there's too much to do. Yeah, you know, one other thing Laura Vandernoot Lipsky mentioned in her talk was this idea that when when the, the trauma becomes too intense, it's easy to allow ourselves to become numb to that trauma, right? And in today's world, with our ability to sort of secrete ourselves in sort of social media echo chambers, right? The ability to kind of think whatever we want to think to scroll away from the realities, right? Um, it, that must heighten some of those 
frontline workers, like the scientists we're talking about here, right? Frontline in a sense of like, right? They're feeling things so acutely and and yet the world, and I know I'm, I'm generalizing the world here. I know not everybody's like this, but it almost feels sometimes like the world collectively is sort of numb to this idea. So, you know, it's funny, as you started saying that, my thoughts actually went a different direction, which is um, that whether as scientists or as journalists, when we're in professional mode, um, we're studying something and it mm-hmm. might be a really interesting and fascinating scientific phenomenon. And it's a little bit exciting to discover something that nobody else has ever seen before. And I'll find myself having these conversations with our scientists. Okay. Explain to me what you were just doing out in the field, or, you know, we're writing a story about this new study that you've just released. Explain it all to me. And Oh, okay. So how does that work? And how did you figure that out? And we dive into it and we're, And then we get to the end of the conversation and occasionally there will just be this pause and like, oh, wait, if I actually stop and process what you just told me you discovered, it's interesting and fascinating and exciting and horrible (laughs) and really hard to confront. And so we're numbing ourselves in a sense. Um, all of those, you know, professional boundaries to maintain objectivity and professionalism, we're we're kind of putting ourselves into a space where we're not allowing ourselves to process that. Um, And it's, it's difficult, but I think also really good to have that stop at the the end of that where you go, huh, okay, I need to actually think about what that means as a human being and a person living on this planet, not just as, um, as a scientist or a journalist digging into this scientific phenomenon. And, um, I'll just share one other story. It's sure. um, um, only partly mine to, to share. So I'll leave <laughs> names out. But um, a colleague, a young reporter who I was mentoring um, was really in this incredible growth and learning phase, really just getting immersed in climate change. And several months into that, she did an interview and came back up to the the newsroom office that that we shared and just tears streaming down her face and she said have you ever cried in the middle of an interview I feel like you know this is completely unprofessional but for the first time I feel like I know enough that when I saw this report and I talked to this person I really grasped what it meant and I you know I think my my response to her was it's not unprofessional. I think it's so important that we don't let ourselves become numb to that, that we do feel that. Um, Because otherwise it's way too easy to just be like, okay, one more study that says this is how bad things are. And we just keep trucking with business as usual. We need to really pay attention to that, um, to that emotion. That's the, that's the warning sign and, and what we need to pay attention to that tells us we need to be heading in a really different direction. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting that that report you brought up before reminds me a little bit of the report that came out in the spring of, I think, 2019, when the UN released this like comprehensive report that talked about there were roughly a million species on the planet that were at risk. Right. And that was right around a time I was doing some work uh, for the Northeast Wilderness Trust. And I remember I wrote an essay, which for me, when I think about our environmental challenges, climate change is sort of like one half of it, 
this looming. And for me, the other side, which kind of hits me and gets me in those kinds of ways, gets me emotional, is when I think about the collapse of ecosystems and biodiversity, which those two things are inherently linked, right? I mean, that's clear. And and yet, I also then think about, um, I saw Eileen Christ, the author Eileen Christ, speak a few months ago, um, author of Abundant Earth, great book, 2019. Um, and she had talked about how people have a very difficult time addressing or, or confronting species collapse. Like the death of living creatures is almost too hard for people to bear. And, and I think about like how that report back in 2019, like it made a big splash and people were kind of hell bent about it. And then it kind of went away and now we're back to like another report. Right. And I just, I guess I wonder like, at what point are we going to see, like, are we seeing this sort of collective consciousness coming together that we need and how do we sort through the, the wildness of people's perspectives? You know, you must be confronting that right on a, on a daily basis. Yeah. And it's funny. I'm actually rereading Barbara Kingsolver's flight behavior right uh, now, which uh, gets actually at exactly what you're talking about. Individuals having to confront um, in front of their eyes, the collapse of a species and um, the emotional response to that or responses, which I guess gets to your other point about the wildness, right? Where some people um, really take that to heart and are moved to do whatever they can to try to save the species or, or you know, act in, in other ways, change their lives and their communities um, to try to move us in a different direction, whereas other people find it so difficult to confront that truth that they actually start to deny it. Well, there must be someplace else that species can go. It can't possibly be as bad. And I think a lot of that with well, with climate change, but with just about any of our environmental problems at this point, it, when you really confront it, it comes with a huge load of guilt. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? Like, oh, did, did I do that? Yeah. Did, did we do that? And um, I think that's one of the really difficult things in thinking about both accepting climate science and confronting where we are and thinking about what we need to do is that our individual actions are really important. And in fact, making changes in our daily lives, there's psychology research as well as, you know, a, a wealth of experience to tell you, you do one small thing. Yeah. You have one small success and it feels really good. Yeah. And you want to do more, right? Yeah. So maybe that's that you put out a, a bird feeder, although in Massachusetts right now, we're not supposed to have bird feeders out yeah. uh, because of concern about an infectious disease. But yeah. Um, you, know, you, you turn do, you turn out some lights, <laughs> right? You, you yeah. turn off a light switch, you change your light bulbs, you plant some native species in your garden, whatever mm -hmm. it is, it seems really small. And you know, intellectually and academically, like that alone is not going to save the world. Yeah. Of course not. But at the same time, the psychological benefit of like, oh, I did something. Yeah. And it can power you to do more. And in my mind, that's the power of individual action in what we're trying to do. Those yes. individual actions aren't what's going to actually stop climate change at this point. We need collective, deep transformation of, of systems and of society. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that 
those individual actions are are a part of that. But I, I feel like we often get bogged down in the the guilt and the I can't do anything about it. Yeah. Um, and my little actions don't mean anything, um, as opposed to realizing that okay, there there's a a flip side to taking ownership of it, which is if we're causing climate change, then we have the power to stop it. Yeah. You know, if we deny it and deny that we're causing it, then we've just stripped ourselves of that agency and that empowerment. Yes. And so that's how I try to grapple with it is, is to live less in the guilt phase, which I, you know, lived there for years. I will, yeah. I, and I'm, I'm, I'm as good as anybody at guilt, um, <laughs> but have, have tried to really flip that coin and say, okay, let's, let's live less in the guilt and more in the, if we're causing this, that means we have the power to change it and small actions, even if they don't fix the whole thing, give us the momentum to keep yeah. doing. Seeing those small successes gives us um, the hope and the encouragement that we need to keep doing the larger work that's absolutely essential. Yeah. Uh, Heather, so interesting. I have two thoughts for you. One, a response, and then one that will lead maybe to a question here. But the first thing is, when you think about those small changes that we can do as individuals, you know, um, cut down on your plastic garbage, right? Turn out light switches, whatever those little, th little things might be. You know, if you think about, too, this idea of, of taking care of your mental health, right? If, you know, if I think about some of the, you know, time I, I've spent in therapy where, you know, if you really want to get to a healthy place, you also have to recognize that at the end of the day, you can only do, you can only do what you can do, right? You can't change the world. You can't change other people. And so at least making yourself healthy and, you know, trying to live the best, most present life you can with your actions, right? That can go a long way. And you're, and you're talking here about that sort of collective power and, and what that could mean. Um, I think that's really smart. And I don't think we talk about that enough. Um, the other thing I wanted to share with you is that when you bring up this idea of guilt, I literally had that thought yesterday driving to work and I'm thinking about like I'm driving through town and I'm thinking about our modern lives, right? I'm thinking about these cars and all these roads that fragment ecosystems, right? I'm thinking about electricity into homes and, you know, phones that are listening to us. Um, and then you think about on the other side, there are all our looming environmental challenges, right? Um, we've got, uh, you know, warming temperatures, the, the ice is melting, right? In the, the polar, I just read somewhere that um, we will soon have a, a year where there's no ice at the um, Arctic. Um, you know, we're looking at the collapse of biodiversity and ecosystems. And I'm thinking about a phrase I remember just reading on Woodwell, um, one of the features you all posted, this idea that we almost didn't know it would be this bad. It would be this big. Um, and I also remember reading recently um, an interview which talked about uh, how even if we start making changes, we really won't be able to go back. It'll take a long time before we see a return in any kind of way to what life must have been. And I had this thought, this the, first the guilt, right, that you talk about. And then I had this thought like, you know, if we had a chance to actually go back and do it another way, I wonder how many people like deep down in their hearts would actually say yes. 
And what a wild thought that is. Yeah, I mean, you're basically talking about a time machine that if we'd had it 30 years ago and could fast forward and show people really viscerally. Yeah. You know, I so um Nina Van Kentraman in in her book The Optimist Telescope, um, released a few years ago, wrote about the importance of imagination in guiding long-term decision-making, wiser decision-making, right? And that we really need to be able to um, almost experience the consequences of our actions in order to really incorporate that. So we're a lot better at short-term decision-making because, you know, we, we get feedback within minutes, hours, days, you know, maybe a year or two when we see the result of our decisions and, oh, okay, well, let's, let's make a different decision next time. And the problem with climate change is that, I mean, in a geological sense, we are changing the planet at an unprecedentedly rapid pace. Yeah. But on the scale of human lives, it's fairly slow. Yeah. And unfortunately, like you said, um, walking back from where we are now, reducing the amount of carbon in the atmosphere and then letting the Earth's systems come back into equilibrium with whatever that level of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is where hopefully we settle, that, that's a process that takes a long time. And so on the scale of my life and your life, mm. what we have right now is probably as good as it's going to get. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's, that's not um, an uplifting thought. And I know for some people, the, the fear is that if we actually say that out loud, that we'll turn everybody off because everybody will just say, well, <laughs> why are we even trying to do anything? We might as well just, you know, let it go. Let the, you know, the Titanic is sinking, like yeah. let's, you know, let the band play. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think one of the really important things um, that we're, as we're all experiencing, whether it's the fires or the heat waves or the floods or the droughts, um, the fact that we are all feeling it now, I do feel like we're reaching a, a social tipping point, yeah, potentially and hopefully. Um, unfortunately, it took you know, some critical mass of, of all of humanity actually feeling the impacts of climate change firsthand, which is a place that, you know, those who've been working on this for decades hoped we would, would never get to, but yeah. um, we are now experiencing it. And hopefully what we can learn from that is that, you know, you hear numbers like one degree of total average global warming since pre-industrial times. And it sounds like, come on, <laughs> yeah. like one degree, it did that, you know, in the last hour, it warmed up a degree, like what's the big deal? And it's like, okay, that one degree is like taking into account all of these different extremes all around the world. The fact that we can even see that much of a change on that scale is amazing. And this is what 1.1 degrees of warming looks like. Yeah. We're hoping to cap warming and stabilize at 1.5 degrees. We're on trajectories that could take us to two degrees, three degrees or beyond Every fraction, this was one of the, I think, the most powerful messages in the most recent IPCC report, is that every fraction of a degree really matters. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. And and we're seeing that. Like, one may seem like a small number, but the fires out west and deadly heat waves and deadly flooding are not small impacts. Yeah. Um, and so hopefully we, we are all waking up to that. Yeah. Um, you, you know, nature is such an intelligent system, right? I mean, we have birds 
that migrate thousands of miles just because they need to go find another ecosystem that can support them through a different season, right? Like there's the integration of our, our, our environments are so complicated that it's hard for, I get, I think a human being to kind of grasp all that, right? So we just have these huge looming messages getting delivered, right? To us, which is overwhelming <laughs> for people. It, like it like I'm thinking of cashing in on my retirement fund. <laughs> <laughs> well, so um, I have to tell you in this regard, and you mentioned the, you know, professional work being wrapped up in your, your personal life. Yeah. Um, I became a mother 14 and a half years ago and wow, what that does to change your perspective on short-term or long-term decision-making and, you know, the guilt. I mean, somebody actually said to me when I was pregnant with my first son, huh, really? You're bringing a kid into this world? Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> there's nothing like um, being a mother to evoke and, and anyone, you know, criticizing uh, or questioning my parenting to evoke yeah. huge amounts of, of guilt and uh, uncertainty. And that was like, oh, you yeah. know, and, and I proceeded to have other children. Um, and it, I would say for me, it's, it's an incredible driving force because giving up, whether it's my retirement savings or their college savings or anything else like that, that's, that's not an option. Yeah. Um, Somebody asked me, I was, I was speaking at a, a small group several years ago and they asked something about that. And they said, well, why don't you, you know, why, why do you keep going? Why does anybody keep going and, and actually facing up to this and dealing with it? And I had one of those moments of like, I actually, I'd had my professional filters on and whatever. And I finally just stopped and I looked at him. I said, I'm a mom. Yeah. Failure is not an option. Yeah. I cannot just leave this to my kids and walk away. That's just not an option. Yeah. And you know, you know, Heather, that makes me think too, let's say you've got this, you know, our lives, our country, our politics, everything's so polarized these days, right? And let's just say you're, you're sitting on either side of the environmental like debate, the climate change debate, right? You know, let's just say the other side is saying, oh, well, maybe this is just what happens, right? My thought is like, do we really want to take that risk? Like, why not just try to make it better? And, and that in some ways is like not giving up, right? That's just like, let's do better. We can do this. Oh, man. So many things that you've already said in this <laughs> conversation, like wrapped up in my response to that. So I want to go back to your question. Like if people had known 30 years ago mm. what we are all experiencing now, would they have made different choices? And what that sparked for me is the fact that in my mind, addressing climate change, we often talk about the sacrifices or what we're going to have to give up in order to address climate change. And for me, there's a very different calculation. Mm. Um, I have found confronting climate change and figuring out what I want to do in my personal life about that, a really uh, empowering and positive experience of aligning my daily life with my values, mm. right? Because we may be really polarized, but there are a few things that I think we can say all human beings share. Yeah. Um, we are hardwired to appreciate beauty. Yes. We are hardwired to connect with nature. Yes. 
we are hardwired to nurture our children. Yeah. And so when we really tap into values like leaving a better world to our children or protecting what is beautiful um, in our world and in the natural world, those are opportunities to start moving in a different direction that push us in the right direction in terms of climate change. And I feel like a large part of how we got to where we are is, is getting out of touch with values because nobody's core values are planetary destruction. Yeah. Right. Like that's yeah. just not nobody, yeah. um, regardless of, of what their espoused views on climate change um, or other environmental or political issues are like, nobody's going to espouse that as a core value, yeah. right? That this yeah. is, this is a, a horrible uh, side effect in effect of, of our systems twisting things. And um, I feel like there's, there's a really um, great opportunity. And that's actually what I often tell people when they say, okay, what should I do about this? And it's, it's not my job to tell other people what they should do about it. Yeah. But I can tell you, there are a lot of resources out there to figure out how climate change intersects with your daily life. Mm. And if you then take that as an opportunity to say, okay, where does this intersect with my values? Yeah. Right. Where are the opportunities to live more in sync with my values? Um, and, and how does that intersect with climate change? Is that biking more, driving less? Is that um, eating less meat? Is that changing, you know, the energy efficiency and energy usage or energy sources for your home? There's, there's so many different ways and options. Is that writing a letter to your elected officials, right? Or Mm -hmm. going to a protest? Like, where does it connect with with you and your values? And those are the things that I think, um, because we need all of those things, picking whatever one aligns most with you um, is, first of all, going to produce the biggest boost in terms of your motivation to do it and your satisfaction in doing it. Um, And we need all of it. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting, Heather, um, we've been talking a lot behind the scenes here at Wild Northeast about this idea that there's a lot on everybody these days and it almost feels like collectively we need a little bit of like a breath, you know, we need some space to like really be with ourselves. We're shouldering a lot. And I guess what you're talking about here are some ideas I've been thinking about a lot in the last, in the last few years, but this idea, like first we just need to retreat a little bit, like take a step back, take, take a pause, Take a breath for yourself, right? Um, I feel like that could then lead to presence. What does it mean to be present in both mind and body? To really think about where you are and what kind of world you're going to be leaving for your children, right? Those deeper um, aspects of our humanity. And, And maybe then we begin to see, like you say, more of an alignment with our value system, right? More alignment with the land and our connections to it which does, will end up leading, you know, leaving a a healthier planet. You know, is that, is that the simple recipe for people, you know, like at this point? Well, I I definitely think it's important to, to take that deep breath and give yourself the space. Um, I I can't speak for what's the right recipe for everything, but in what you were saying, what really resonated for me is one personal choice that I've made, which is to limit um, air travel um, until air travel can be done with a lower carbon footprint. Um, and yes, you know, this is one of those, you know, do you want to see the glasses half full or half empty or which side of the coin do you want to look at? Like I'm limiting air travel. So I'm limiting my options to 
go see far-flung parts of the world. But in fact, what I've discovered in that, and I think COVID really forced me in this direction, um, but I think a lot of us started to experience this during COVID, is um, to develop a greater connection to place and a greater Mm. appreciation for the beauty and the wildness that is right around me. Mm. Um, And over the past couple of years, as I've been kind of you know, again, COVID made it really easy to avoid air travel as, as we're maybe coming out of that and looking at the resumption of, of some travel. I'm kind of grappling again with this, like, oh, does this feel like more of a burden or an opportunity? Um, but I think in part because of being forced to be in place so intensely for a year and a half, it shifted that and it doesn't feel like as much of a burden. It really does feel like an opportunity to connect to all of the amazing places that are right around us. And I think that can be a really powerful tool in Mm. in thinking about um, climate change as well, to not just be overwhelmed by the big global picture, but really like you were saying, focus in and be present with, with what's local. And actually I was having a conversation uh, last night with um, this well-respected expert in science diplomacy. And we were talking about really, how do we get at this? And he, he basically was saying, you know, we need, we need global action. Mm. But what we kind of need is a globally connected network of local action. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Nations are important. International structures are important. But we live our daily lives at a local level. Yeah. Um, that's where we have the opportunities to, to change our infrastructure, change our zoning, you know, to, to really get our own hands dirty and, and make change in our community. Um, and, and there's a real power. And I think, like you said, just being really present to what's right around you in your local environment, you're still going to see the impacts of climate change. We're all seeing them, um, but not being so overwhelmed by the global picture and feeling a greater sense of, of agency. Um, and I'll just, I know we're running short on time. I will leave you with maybe um, a fabulous definition that uh, Dr. Ed Maybach, the head of George Mason University's Center for Climate Change, um, Climate Change Communication, uh, shared with me a few months ago, which is that he defines optimism Mm -hmm. as a shared sense of efficacy and agency. Shared sense of efficacy and agency. Ah, that's nice. Isn't it? I mean, like you're breaking optimism, which we think of as being, oh, it's just a, you know, a choice you make and an attitude that you adopt. And he's like, no, it's really rooted Yeah. in this deep sense that I am part of something and I can do something. Yeah. And, you know, you said before, Heather, about connecting to the wildest around you and connecting to place. And I was thinking, wow, what a great place to come to for our conversation here, because that's literally our project, right? Um, you know, we're here about to launch the new Wild Northeast. Um, and, you know, that's what we are hoping to explore. You know, can we be a, a model, a regional, local model of, of individuals connected to place? And, and, and as we explore that wildness, which are the, the aspects of our humanity that go deeper than our politics, right? The, the aspects of our, our primal nature that really connect individuals. Like, is that how maybe you bring a, a collective consciousness together? I don't know, but 
there seems to be a, a lot of exciting possibility. Um, so maybe this would be a good time to just plug wildnortheast.org, right, to check us out. We're going to be launching a really cool Kickstarter campaign. Um, we want to build uh, an incredible readership of, of, of people out there. We want to build a community. And, uh, you know, our, our, our goals inherently are, you know, to remain advertisement free and reader supported. And we want to pay our artists and writers for their, you, you know, deeply personal work. So um, definitely check us out too. Um, and Heather, this was awesome. I'm hoping maybe we could do this every so often, just kind of have a check-in, you know, um, I think that would be a lot of fun. I would love to do that. This has been terrific. That's great. Hey, before we sign off, can I just um, share with people, what were those books that came up in our conversation? You mentioned Flight Behavior and you mentioned Optimist Telescope. Is that right? The Optimist's Telescope. Okay. I can send you links to them, but yeah. Um, but, but I was thinking for people listening in. Um, yep. Yeah. So op- the Optimist Telescope, Flight Behavior, and then also Abundant Earth came up by Eileen yep. Christ. Yeah, cool. Which I haven't had a chance to read yet. It's on my list. Yeah, it's heavy. You know, you know, she's really talking about, you know, the language we need to, to address and think about is this idea of a human supremacy on the biosphere, which, which is intense. Um, and she's focused a lot on deep ecology and, and biodiversity collapse. But um, it's an important read, you know, so maybe that's just another example of like, look, we got to keep reading, we got to keep learning, right? So, yep, absolutely. Right. Hey, Heather, this was awesome. <laughs> no, this was really fun. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah, for sure. All right, I'll be in touch and um, we'll talk soon. All right, thanks. All right. Thank Bye. you.